Well, we are continuing on in our series called Growing in Christ. And we've been exploring this theme of spiritual growth and asking the question, how do we grow and how do we mature in faith? This theme of growing up and maturing is one of the central themes we see throughout the scriptures. In the Old Testament, it's Israel. In the New Testament, you see the church uh, tackling this theme of what it means to grow up individually, but also corporately. What does it seek to grow in our faith in God and growing in wisdom, growing in love, growing in dependence upon Jesus and his provision? These themes, they just get repeated over and over again. They're everywhere throughout the scriptures. But this question of growing in our faith and maturity is almost always set against the backdrop of perhaps an even larger question. And that question is often asked this way, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready to do what God is calling you to do? Are you ready to go where God is calling you to go? Are you ready to hear what God is calling you to hear? Now, I'm framing these questions in a very spiritual way, but this is also how the rest of life works as well. All throughout life, the question of maturity often comes at a time when we face a new task or a new job or some sort of new endeavor or a new relationship from entering into a new school or taking on a new job or career, a new relationship, marriage, raising kids. This is the question. Are you ready for this next stage? Are you ready for this new thing? There are always these questions lingering anytime we face something new. Do we have the wisdom, the character, the skill, the heart, the desire to do the thing that we are asking or wanting or being told that we ought to do? So this morning, we're going to look at a moment in the Gospel of John where the answer to that question, are you ready, as the disciples are asked, are you ready, is, well, no. They are not. In a nutshell, the disciples are completely in over their heads. They are most certainly not ready. They're not mature enough at this moment for the task that Jesus is giving them to do. And yet, that doesn't stop Jesus. Doesn't slow him down. He's keeping moving forward. He's moving forward on his mission, his task, as he gets closer to the cross. And it doesn't stop him from giving the disciples their task and their mission to go out into the world and represent this kingdom that Jesus is bringing. And so it's as Jesus invites and also commands them to take up their calling to move out into the world without him, when they are not ready that we find out just how they're going to mature, how they are going to grow in faith, and therefore how we grow as well. And the key lies in the gift that Jesus gives us, the gift of his spirit. And so this morning, because this is Pentecost Sunday, the Sunday on the Christian calendar when the church celebrates the role and the gift of the Holy Spirit, I'd like us to consider what it means for us to follow the spirit. And in doing so, I hope that we can see how Jesus calls us and then equips us both to grow in our faith and then to follow after him by receiving and following the Spirit. So in your order of worship, you'll see our uh, text is from John chapter 15, starting verse 26, and then we're going to move through uh, chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. So let's give our attention to God's word. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when the hour comes, you may may remember that I told them to you. 
I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they did not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Would you pray with me? Our great God and heavenly Father, now we do ask that your spirit would come to us. Without your spirit, these words are lifeless and they are dull. And Lord, we pray that you would animate these words, but more importantly, you would stir our hearts. That we we would be pierced where we need to be pierced. We would be comforted where we need to be comforted. And that you, in fact, would guide us into all truth. So in hearing and discerning and contemplating, we would grow up we would mature more and more into the image of your Son and our Savior Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. This passage in John 16 is one of the most comforting and, yeah, I think profoundly confusing texts in all of the Bible because it violates one of the fundamental assumptions about life, that it's better to be present with someone than it is to be absent from them. Think about this in terms of the communication hierarchy for every meeting. I mean, this is something we've been talking about for the last three years, ever since remote work uh, became something that, uh, that we all had to figure out. What's the best way to meet with someone? Well, the best way is a face-to-face meeting, and then usually number two is a Zoom meeting, and then perhaps third is a phone call, and now we're just getting into all sorts of uh, craziness, the conference call, maybe an email is next, and then lastly, the text message. And how about relationships? If you're in love with someone, it's better to be with them than to be apart from them. Which is why it's hard to believe Jesus when he says to his disciples that it's better that I leave you all. But here in verse 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now what Jesus is telling his disciples is that it is better for him to leave them. Because his leaving them means the helper, who is the Holy Spirit, will come to them. And we'll be with them. Jesus is leaving this small group of followers in a dangerous world. I mean, after all, Jesus spends so much time telling us, and and, and John spends so much time telling us that the world is going to be against them. They're going to want to kill them. They're going to be thinking they're doing honor to God when they cast them out of the synagogues and try and kill them. And Jesus is leaving these disciples in this smaller crowd with weak faith, no worldly power or influence. And no real blueprint for what they're supposed to do or where they're supposed to go. The work that Jesus is leaving them is messy. And it is dangerous. It's going to cost them their lives. So it would seem to everyone's advantage that Jesus stick around for a little while longer. 
and really as long as possible. You know, it almost sounds like he's giving them that old platitude, I'm going to be with you in spirit, right? You've probably heard that, maybe you've said that before to someone, which means basically, I wish I could be there, but I can't, so I'll think about you, but you're going to have to do this alone. And I suppose that's nice if you're going into surgery, someone says, I'll be with you in spirit, or you're going in to have a really difficult talk with someone, or you're going into a job interview, I'll be with you in spirit. I think those are fine words perhaps to say, but not when the world is against you. Not when you're left, you've left everything behind, including your family and your job, in order to follow Jesus. And what lies ahead of you is sorrow and death. And now you have to hear that Jesus is leaving you. But Jesus can say all of this, and he can leave behind his disciples at such a critical moment with so much work still to be done because Jesus has complete trust in the Holy Spirit. And he's right to have his trust in the Holy Spirit. Because all throughout the the Bible, the Spirit is there at all the major events. Look, the Spirit is there at creation. In the very opening verses of Genesis, it's the Spirit of God that is hovering over the face of the chaotic waters. Isaiah 63 tells us that it's the Holy Spirit who was there with Israel during their exodus. The Holy Spirit is there at the conception of Jesus. Matthew tells us that Mary was with child from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is there at the baptism of Jesus. The Spirit descends like a dove. At the temptation of Jesus, it's the Spirit that leads Jesus out into the wilderness. And then Paul tells us in Romans 8 that it's the Spirit that actually raised Jesus from the dead. Listen to Romans 8, chapter 11. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So so the spirit is at the resurrection. The spirit is the one doing the resurrecting. And then finally he takes center stage at Pentecost and all throughout the book of Acts as he gives life to the church and follows them in their mission. And that's certainly not everything the spirit has done. Those are just the highlights, but you have to admit it's pretty impressive work. And so when we put in that context, the the trust that Jesus has in the Holy Spirit, it kind of makes sense. He's not telling the disciples, I'll be thinking about you, sorry, but I can't be there. He's telling them that the person they need to move them out into the world, into all this conflict, into all this sorrow, and into all this confusion is the Holy Spirit. He's the one they need. He's the expert at it. And look, the same is true of us. As we think about how we can be a people who bear witness to the power and to the presence of God in our lives, when we too face conflict, uncertainty, and sorrow, when we think about how we face the challenges of the city and the world and how we are to grow in our faith, the Holy Spirit is promised to us, and he is exactly who we need. And so the question is, do we trust the Spirit as much as Jesus does. So briefly, I want to look at the two roles the Spirit plays in this passage. The Spirit leads us into humility, and also the Spirit leads us into hope. And it's as we carry both humility and hope, as we follow the Spirit, we will grow in Christ and follow after him in his mission to make all things new. And see, I think both humility and hope are actually the, one, some of the key marks to Christian maturity. And here, the the Spirit promises to grow in us both. So first, look at how the Spirit leads us into humility. 
The word that Jesus uses for the Spirit is in verse 7. It's the helper. The word there is paraclete, which means counselor or advocate. But it carries these legal connotations, like a counselor in a lawsuit, a divine lawsuit. And in verses 8 through 11, where Jesus offers a very tight three-point sermon, which as a Presbyterian preacher just makes me giddy and thrilled to see Jesus giving a three-point sermon. (laughs) The irony, of course, is I'm not preaching a three-point sermon today, if you're scoring at home. Anyway, verse 8 through 11, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. See, the work that the Holy Spirit is going to do in the world can be summarized by that word convict. In John chapter 3, it's the same word used, but there it's translated expose. In that context, it's light coming into the world and exposing as light does. So it means convict like we might think of convict in terms of a guilty verdict. But it also means way more than that. And if you want to see what this looks like when the Holy Spirit convicts the world or exposes the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, we need to look at actually what happened at Pentecost. Because it's there that the Holy Spirit comes as Jesus has promised, and this exact thing happens. In Acts chapter 2, what we use for our call to worship, Peter and the other disciples are gathered and the Holy Spirit comes and descends upon people who were gathered there for the Feast of Pentecost. And all these people who spoke all sorts of different languages begin to understand one another. And they begin to declare the mighty works of God. And some who watch this stand in awe. Others think these people are, are drunk. And Peter gets up to this crowd and says, no, 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 you've got it wrong. They're not drunk. And goes on to explain that what the prophet Joel had promised in sending the Holy Spirit is now, is now happening. And as Peter finishes this sermon, this is what happens in verse 37. <clears throat> it says this, now when they heard that this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, that's the picture of the Holy Spirit at work in the world, convicting, or as Acts puts it, cutting people to the heart. Here are these people who, upon hearing all that God had done and hearing the depth of their own sin, as Peter described to them, they're cut to the heart. They're convicted. And see, part of what it means to be cut to the heart or convicted or exposed is to see the ways in which you have substituted what God says about the world with your own views about the world. And that's what Jesus is saying when he says the Holy Spirit comes to the world convict concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. See, the Spirit reveals unbelief. The Spirit reveals self-righteousness and our quest to be our own judge and to be our own God. And the Holy Spirit comes like a surgeon cutting exactly where he needs to cut to reveal our sin, our rebellion, and our brokenness. And my point this morning isn't just that this happens, but really we are called to be a people who trust the Holy Spirit to do that kind of work. And so this means that growing up in a Christ and following and trusting in the Holy Spirit means that we will be marked by humility. A humility that trusts the Spirit's wisdom and power. That trusts the Spirit's wisdom and power with the world, with the church, and with our very own lives over our own wisdom and power. Let's return to that question of maturity that we started with, right, for the disciples. 
At, at, at this moment, when Jesus is saying he's, he's going to leave, are they ready? Well, no, of course not. Are they mature enough to handle this next stage and their next endeavor to extend Jesus' mission and to do it without him? No. They're most certainly not ready because they've yet to been, be cut to the heart. But they will. They are going to grow in humility. It will be Peter's denial and fear and the other's failure at the moment of Jesus' deepest needs that the Spirit will use to grow in them a humility that reminds them that they will always and forever be in need of him. No matter how much they mature, no matter how much these disciples grow, no matter how much power they exhibit in their ministry, no matter how quickly and powerfully the church grows and how much influence the church has in the world, no matter what else happens, what they are learning is that they will never outgrow their total dependence upon God's grace and the Spirit to move and direct them. And so the same is true of us. See, the deep irony of the Christian faith is it's only as you grow in your dependence upon the Spirit that you actually grow in your faith. Never does growing in your faith, maturing as a follower of Jesus, means greater independence. It never means more freedom to embark out on your own and do as you see fit. I mean, we began this sermon by drawing similarities between spiritual maturity and all other forms of maturity that we face in our lives. And there are lots of similarities, but the major difference is that in so much of our life, the mark of maturity and growth is independence. I mean, that's what we're after for our children, right? We want our children to grow in their independence so that they can make it out into the world. And that's good as far as it goes. But the more we grow up, in, the more independent and self-reliant we become, the more dangerous and the, le the uh, lesser we see our need of Jesus. Because with Christian maturity... The opposite is true. The more we grow up in our faith, the more reliant and dependent upon God we become. And see, the gift of the Holy Spirit is the source of tremendous hope. It is the source of great comfort. We're going to look at that in just a minute. But it's also a reminder that as we grow in Christ, we're going to grow in humility. Because Jesus never leaves us alone. He never leaves us to go out under our own power, to go out under our own strength. Because the truth of the matter is, you're never ready. We're never ready on our own. We're never ready to love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're never ready to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're never ready to be the church for the hurting world on our own. You're never ready for the hard conversation. You're never ready to serve. You're never ready to enter the brokenness of the world on your own. It's only by the power of the Spirit that you will be able to do any of the things that God is calling us to do. And that means we ought always to be marked by humility. Humility that leads us then into patience and into service, sacrifice, and love. But this is only part of what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit convicts. He cuts to the heart and he grows in us a humility that we are never ready and never mature enough really to do the things and be the people that God is calling us to be. But rather than, growing, than that fact, growing in us shame or despair or simply being stuck or growing in us a, a fear to not even deal with the issues of the world, the Spirit also comforts and equips and leads us to do the very thing that we cannot do on our own. And so just as the Spirit leads us into humility, he also grows in us hope. Look at verse 12 and 13. 
<clears throat> Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. You know, I think one of the most difficult jobs in all of New York City is the summer day camp counselor. I don't know if you've ever seen a summer day camp counselor at work, but it is a tough job. If you've seen them, oftentimes they're gathering sometimes 20, 30. Sometimes in Brooklyn, I would see sometimes 40 kids between the ages of, let's say, 6 and 12, navigating the subways and buses, taking them from their general meeting place to some sort of utopia, the utopia of city summer day camp, sometimes a pool, sometimes the park, sometimes the beach. It's completely overwhelming to watch this. But there are these counselors hurting, guiding, yelling, warnings, do whatever it takes to deliver these children safely to wherever they're supposed to go. And that's a picture of how the Holy Spirit is at work in the church. The Spirit is this personal, active presence of God with his people. Remember, most of the time you see the Spirit at work in the church, he's leading, he's guiding, he's out in front of the people. It's the Holy Spirit that led Israel through the desert on their exodus. And now it's the Holy Spirit who's going to guide and lead the church on its mission into the world. See, with the presence of the Spirit among God's people is the call to move forward, to get a move on. Remember, that's what Jesus is telling his disciples. I'm leaving you, but you have a job to do, to move out into the world with this great hope and with this mission. And so just like the camp counselor telling the kids just where to get off and warning them over and over again not to stand too close to the subway tracks and coming to make sure that everyone's, they have the count, that everyone's made it safely to where they need to go and telling them to move on, that's the Spirit guiding the church. And again, notice that the trust that Jesus has in the Spirit. In verse 12, Jesus says, look, I have so much more to tell you, but you can't handle it now, and our time is running out. And so he's going to leave what he has left to be said. He's going to leave that to the Spirit who will reveal to them just what they need to know at just the right time. And there's a quality of the Holy Spirit that Jesus highlights here in order to help us trust the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a really good listener. The Holy Spirit speaks not of his own authority, but he first listens to the Father and the Son, and then he declares the things that he has heard. And this process of revelation, where the Spirit listens to the Father and the Son and then passes on everything to his people, means that he is also going to grow in us. Clarity. Clarity about the world, clarity about the church, and clarity about our own lives. Again, you see this uh, at play out in the lives of the disciples. Jesus has so much more to tell them, but they can't handle it. It's too much for them. And for someone like Peter, who at this point, as Jesus is telling this, is kind of a mess. He's going to abandon Jesus at his darkest hour. He's full of fear and confusion. He has an oversized view of his own influence and his own understanding, and so he completely lacks any sort of humility. And just a little while later, 40 days later to be exact, at Pentecost, Peter's going to give this sermon where thousands of people are convicted and come to faith. He's brave and so confident about the gospel in in those days and in that sermon. So what happened? I mean, it's not like he went to seminary in 40 days. He didn't read a bunch of commentaries. No, the Holy Spirit came and was at work doing what exactly he had promised to do here in John chapter 16. So here's what this means for us. The same Holy Spirit that was promised by Jesus 
to his disciples. The same Holy Spirit that was given to the church at Pentecost is now at work here and all over the world in his church. And Jesus' call to the disciples extends to us. Trust the work of the Holy Spirit in the world and the church and follow after him. And follow him with great hope. See, Jesus has entrusted the message of the gospel and he's entrusted the messengers of the gospel, who are us, to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's job is now to apply all the promises and benefits of Jesus' life, his sacrificial death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead to his people. And the Spirit is now on the loose. And he will not be stopped. He cannot be domesticated. He's moving the kingdom forward. That's the hope for you and for me and and for this church. See, Jesus hasn't left us to fend for ourselves. He's given us his Spirit to guide and direct us. And this means that if you're a follower of Jesus, you are in fact ready. You are ready. You're ready to serve. You're ready to speak truth. You're ready to listen carefully. You're ready to love sacrificially. And you're ready to suffer joyfully. Not because you finally figured it out. Not because you have it all together. But because the spirit that Jesus trusts so completely is at work in you. This is the hope Jesus promises, and this is what the Spirit brings. This is the hope that is offered to you. And this is the way to Christian maturity. So as you try and live the Christian life, look, there are going to be moments in your life where you'll find yourself completely cut to the heart, completely convicted. Your sin and brokenness and your shortcomings will be on display. You will be exposed. Your unbelief will be evident. Some of your most basic assumptions about the world will be challenged. Your world is going to be turned upside down. And as hard as any of that is to endure, as hard as any of that is to cope with, and it is hard, you should also take heart because it's the Holy Spirit at work in you. Let him convict you and let him grow in you a humility and a dependence more upon God's Spirit than to guide you and to lead you back to where he's going to lead you, which is to Jesus, to his infinite grace and his infinite mercy. And there are going to be times when you have complete clarity and wisdom about your life, the lives of others, and the world that you've never had before. You'll find yourself comforted in the midst of sorrow. You'll find yourself comforting others in the midst of their sorrow. You'll find yourself able to listen and enter into other people's confusion and pain. And you'll be able to live selflessly and generously and courageously. And you'll be able to do it with humility. And in those moments, you should also take heart and celebrate that because that's the work of the Spirit. Be comforted by the Holy Spirit and let him grow in you a hope that he will never, ever leave you alone. It's humility and hope that the Spirit offers us as he convicts us and as he comforts us and guides us that leads us back to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And as we follow the Spirit, we're then going to be able to offer our very selves for the sake of the world. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you so guide and direct us and you've given us the gift of your Spirit, that we are never left alone. Lord, you know that so often we want to go out on our own way and we think we know better for our own lives and for our world and for the church. And yet you guide us and convict us. 
and you comfort us. And so, Lord, we pray and we thank you for the gift of your spirit. Make us a people who rest more deeply, more confidently, and more hopefully, not in our own selves, but in this gift of your spirit. We pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.